and welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the intersection where faith and reason meet on a weekly basis here. I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper, of course, coming to you from where it all began in 1981 on Mother Angelica Way and, of course, the uh, mothership, as Father likes to call it. And you can email your questions to us, of course, at spitzersuniverse at ew10.com, very important part of the show. Check out all of Father Spitzer's ever-changing websites. We've got themagiscenter.com, herbersvilleuniverse.com, and a new one, spitzercenter.org, and that's a .org. And Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EWTN YouTube channel and on our very popular EWTN On Demand page. Check it out if you haven't been there. We're always adding new programs. Recently, we added The Way of Benedict XVI. Fine documentary, takes an insightful look at the life and work of our past beloved Pope. And you'll want to check it out for free, and it is on demand. And of course, our show topic is talking about the Holy Eucharist from Father's book, Escape from Evil's Darkness. It's a section we're going through. And now also we've got a book from our friends at EWTN Publishing, of which I'm part of, a primer on fundamental moral theology by the always insightful Father Brian Milady, and of course, Father Milady is one of our open line hosts on a regular basis. He was just on with Father Spitzer and myself in a taping for a future airing of the Catholic Sphere, so you can look for that as well. And with that being said, we'll turn to Father Spitzer. Great to see you again, Father. Great to be with you, Doug. If you'd like to kick us off with a, a prayer, that'd be great. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. Send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Mary, seat of wisdom. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we also want to uh, keep in mind the young children and the teachers who were unfortunately killed at that uh, tragedy Absolutely. in Nashville. Recently keep those people from that, that covenant school in our prayers. Contrary to what some people on Twitter say, prayers do actually are efficacious and work quite well. And yes, are important they are. for people. So. Uh, here's, a, here's a study a lot of people have been talking about. I wanted to pull a couple of things out from the uh, Wall Street Journal did with, uh, with what's called NORC at the University of Chicago. And there were a couple mm -hmm. of interesting things that, that people pointed out uh, about patriotism being down and w what's important to people. But I, I thought that one of the things that was mm -hmm. interesting is the number one thing was hard work, which is kind of interesting that that continues. That's a positive thing. Uh, one of the yeah. lowest mm -hmm. uh, things as being very important or somewhat important is religion, about 60%. Mm -hmm. But the other one that's right behind mm -hmm. hard work is self-fulfillment. Uh, kind of interesting. Yep. Uh, and, and in fact, if you look yeah. at not important, uh, it mm -hmm. is w almost the least one-sided as being not important. So the idea of people seeing self-fulfillment mm -hmm. as being incredibly Important. Now, hard work, that's good. That's a good marriage of those two. But sometimes they get separated, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they do. And not only that, of course, self-fulfillment can become an end in itself. 
so easily, which can, as you put it, separate off from hard work. In fact, make hard work almost impossible mm -hmm. uh, because if self-fulfillment goes in the direction of uh, anything from drugs to alcohol to pornography, the three biggest addictions in the United States, uh, which are often classified as part of self-fulfillment, and uh, right next to it, of course, material self-fulfillment, in other words, getting uh, uh, whatever kind of car and house and so forth that one needs, quote unquote. So all of these things uh, put into perspective. Uh, if I put it into my language, just mm -hmm. if level one happiness, the materialistic and the pleasure uh, aspects of happiness become overwhelmingly important, then level two, mm -hmm. which is um, ego comparative, uh, advantage um, and that hard work and ego comparative advantage oftentimes go hand in hand uh, until of course uh, pride cometh before the fall and um, you know kills the uh, the hard-working person right well, a wonderful book on that in, is Jim Collins book how the mighty fall mm -hmm. and um, in there he just details all of these people who through sheer dint and force of hard work creativity and you know just 16 17 hour a day work you know uh, seven day a week work weeks you know these guys are uh, really doing fantastic things and then suddenly they become so full of themselves cablamo um, you know they uh, they go down for the count right. so uh, as you're right I mean uh, that that's all part of it but uh, the fact though that religion is not important right. uh, two things really come to mind if religion is not important you can expect a incredible increase in depression, anxiety, uh, antisocial aggressivity, substance abuse, right. familial tensions, suicidal ideation, and suicides. Why? Because, of course, religion's part of our nature. We need to be in communion with, you know, an ultimate mm -hmm. being, in communion with what Christians would call an ultimate and unconditionally loving being. We need to be in communion uh, with a being that can give us ultimate dignity and ultimate significance and ultimate meaning and purpose in life. We need to be ultimately moored. And if we aren't, we feel a tremendous sense of dread and emptiness, alienation, fear, mm -hmm. loneliness and um, uh, guilt and so all of these things really come you know kind of back on us so we should expect that if religion becomes less and less important we should expect a radical right. increase um, in depression anxiety suicides etc and that's exactly right. what we see among young people before COVID as I've said before mm -hmm. a 52 percent increase in suicides 56 percent increase in depression 63 percent increase in anxieties and anxiety and 23 percent increase in homicides just among that group before COVID. Now with COVID, mm -hmm. you can double that percentage increase. And so now you're right. dealing with uh, huge numbers. You're dealing with doublings and triplings of suicides, right. depression, anxiety, etc. within right. the culture. And, 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 so, um, you know, right. especially to, young people. And to go to, to just the recent event, we had a, a situation where the person who yeah. was the perpetrator was a quote-unquote trans person who uh, obviously yeah. had that situation and apparently had some other emotional issues uh, at least has been reported and also was reported that had mm -hmm. sent a text or, or some sort of posting to a friend basically indicating that they viewed what they were going to be doing as a form of suicide in the sense that they assumed that they would die at the end of this event and so you talk about another mm -hmm. iteration of suicide right 
Yeah, no, it's <clears throat> unfortunately, it's I'm going to take down everybody with me form of suicide, which is an incredibly selfish and right. cowardly act of suicide, especially using nine-year-olds as your instrument. I mean, uh, there's something seriously, right. seriously wrong and evil. Let's just take the word out of the, the head. It's not just a, a problem uh, psychologically, uh, psychiatrically. This is, this is the, you know, downright evil when you decide, you know, nine-year-old kids uh, can be your victim uh, for, um, you know, ridding, you know, the, uh, yourself from the world. Right. So the, the idea, of course, is, uh, you know, what's going wrong with the culture? What's going wrong with the culture is it's becoming incredibly narcissistic. Right. Christopher Lash's culture of narcissism is writ large. And um, like I said, the loss of religion is a huge part of it because it's not just the loss of communion with God and the ultimate meaning and purpose and identity and dignity that comes from religion. It's also the fact that religion religion gives morality. Morality we know helps with psychological stability, very much so. Traditional morality especially helps with, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I wrote a whole book on this, right? The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, where you can see the correlation between emotional stability, emotional health, happiness, and traditional morality. And, and of course, you, you abandon religion, you're also going to mm -hmm. abandon some form of traditional morality, and you got a double whammy going on and that's not just as I said increasing the suicides and increasing the depression anxiety it's increasing the homicides look at the huge increase in homicides uh, you know that are happening with young people and so now we, we look at this and uh, you know I think uh, this um, uh, Audrey Hale uh, she's just one example of um, you know uh, how uh, this is kind of becoming, right. uh, you know, pervasive. You can say, well, you know, they should have had uh, stricter gun laws, as, uh, you know, the president is saying, but, you know, at the, at the same time, uh, the, the idea that we have to, um, to, to take a look at is we need to restabilize the culture, too. There's something wrong in the mm -hmm. culture. Right. We need to, as it were, uh, get back to uh, some sort of norms of morality. We need to get back to, uh, you know, a, a notion of religion uh, that is a exceedingly necessary for just our mental stability, our emotional stability. Right. So all these things being considered, you know, I, I think, uh, sure, of right. course they should have checked. I mean, how could somebody with uh, deep-set emotional problems, perhaps even uh, suicidal or homicidal manifestations right. that might have been there, how in the world is she able to purchase uh, seven guns at five different stores? I don't know, but right. that's another problem. But it's the, the problem is, as I said, it's a deep-set right. cultural problem uh, that has to be addressed uh, head-on. And the attacks that traditional and social media have on religion and traditional morality, they better look at what they're doing because they're causing in this culture mm -hmm. a huge decline in uh, not only emotional health and, and uh, um, you know, mental health, uh, mm -hmm. but also uh, a huge decline in cultural stability as well as individual flourishing and well-being. Do you think so, there's... So uh, it's, it's really a betrayal right. uh, you... by this, you know... Uh, right. Do you think there's anything to the fact that maybe years ago if somebody was in that situation, let's say the trans kind of situation or considering that, 
that would have been considered as something, at least initially, as maybe this person was having emotional difficulties and things like that. Today, that gets pretty much dismissed. So to go and say somebody who yeah. is, feels they're trans has something wrong with them, you might be canceled. Well, yeah, I mean, that's right. But I mean, I think also um, it is a well-known fact that you know, there are tremendous em emotional anxieties that are associated with um, trans, uh, with, um, uh, you know, transgender mm -hmm. dysphoria or uh, gender dysphoria. Uh, and, of course, the idea, you know, about, the, you know, the, the anxieties do have to be resolved. We know very well that the sexual reassignment surgery will not work, though that was not uh, present here in, in this particular case. But the, sh sh still, the, the fact mm -hmm. is, you really do need to treat the, uh, um, the anxiety level, which is, is significantly high, um, if you're going to help that person. But uh, it can also, as you can see, right. it could also spill out uh, into... Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily do so, right. um, but uh, you know, it, it could spill out um, in, into uh, uh, what we've seen here. But right. I mean, again, you know, there's lots of people who are, you know, emotionally unstable out there. We we should be treating them, right. um, and uh, you know, the idea of letting them buy guns is a very odd thing right. indeed. Absolutely, <clears throat> right. But there's also yeah. out there too, as you've seen with some of the headlines from some of the secular groups you know, who don't want to go near that as any aspect of what could have been involved with why this occurred. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, so you get a certain yeah. amount of that. But we'll have to see how things turn out, um, you know, as more information yeah. comes out. A couple of other things from um, th this particular survey talks about the idea, how often do you attend religious services? Never or less than once a year is 51% of the people. Uh, yeah. People who go yeah. every week, about 13%, several times a week, 6%, uh, and some who say nearly every week is about 20, a total of another five, so it's 24%. So you see the numbers there, obviously. Um, I thought this was interesting, mm -hmm. too. Uh, they asked the people, what do you, uh, what's your affiliation? Protestant, 26. Roman Catholic, 21. Atheist, 4. Agnostic, 8%. But I thought this was interesting. You have Protestant, Catholic, and then you have just Christian, 20%. It's kind of interesting yeah. that there would be people who would associate well, themselves. I, I guess yeah. maybe they could be, uh, you know, Eastern Rite uh, Catholics, but it's kind of interesting, just Christian. Well, yeah, yeah, well, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think sometimes, um, you know, evangelicals right. uh, will not necessarily associate themselves with uh, traditional, what's called mainstream Protestants. Protestantism. Yeah, and I think that's where the distinction is coming in. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Yeah. The other thing was, uh, let's say they asked people about uh, how important is religion or a bunch of other things to your, essential to your identity. 34% said religion is mm -hmm. essential to their identity. 29% more said mm -hmm. important but not too essential. And then 37% basically said not, not too important. Uh, and uh, yeah. other people asked, uh, do you consider yourself religious, uh, very or moderately 47 percent, uh, very religious uh, mm -hmm. itself was 17 and moderate was 31, not religious or slightly religious, mm -hmm. 52. So more people considered themselves not religious at all or slightly religious in this survey. So mm -hmm. some interesting yeah, no, uh, numbers. I've, as we've been saying, we're becoming a secular society and uh, this is just one more survey that 
uh, validates that. But remember, a secular society goes downhill pretty fast, and uh, uh, you know even Socrates or Plato would have mm -hmm. said that. I mean, you wouldn't have to be a, a traditional Christian by any stretch of the imagination, or a religious person by any stretch of the imagination, uh, to see that. And uh, just look, as I said, you look at the huge decline uh, in emotional life of people who are not religious, mm -hmm. as measured by the American Psychiatric Association. You know, not 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 by uh, you know Bob Spitzer's Catholic Association. Right. You know, you can still see you know pretty clearly that um, that decline in in emotional health is so mm. radical uh, when you lose religion. It's got to affect right. the, uh, the culture as the culture becomes progressively more secularized. So we should expect to see infighting. We should expect to see all of these kinds of uh, you know, reactions that are going on. And so I would uh, you know, suspect that um, you know, if we don't turn this around in some way, right. I, I suspect we will be a, a society fraught with even more uh, civil discord, with even more cultural discord uh, than we're experiencing at the present moment. Right. And um, I think uh, uh, the political environment just feeds the frenzy, and certainly uh, the social media, the Instagram, etc., feeds the frenzy considerably. Right. Uh, to, to jump off of what you said earlier in talking about the survey, there was an article that was in the Catholic World Report where a person, uh, the author, pointed out that everything that was wrong and was recognized as such two generations ago is now right. Divorce followed by serial marriage, adultery, cohabitation, among the unmarried, fornication, contraception, homosexuality. Few of us really think through the full implications of this. Uh, and he talks about first, whereas the traditional prohibitions were clearly oriented at preserving the creation and stabilities of families and exercise of sexuality supporting that end, the current norms can logically only result in the destruction of the traditional family. As sexual morality goes, so goes the family. And I thought this was an interesting point. He says, it's worth noting that the phenomenon of removing laws from the sexual realm is overall in direct contrast with what occurs in nearly every other aspect of our life today. Goes on to say, so the sexual yeah. revolution has this further peculiar trait of being a call for the end of law in society that is generally at the same time expanding the areas covered by law and multiplying regulations. Isn't that interesting? Oh yeah, no, I think uh, all of those things are utterly predictable. As I've said before, it's not just the loss of the family, it's the loss of emotional health individually and the loss of uh, civil, uh, uh, you know, accord, uh, civil peace, uh, and um, as you put it, the increase of laws, because you've got to increase uh, not, you know, all of these laws to keep, as it were, the peace from outside, external pressures to keep the peace because on the inside we're basically filled with more and more civil strife and blowing up. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, the solution to me is, you know, go back to, uh, to God, you know, get back to uh, even God's morality. Uh, if you think that this autonomous view of, of freedom and you think that this do as you will um, view of sexuality and sexual morality is good for you or f good for society. I mean, just look at the pornography statistics. Mm. You know, the, the longer you view it, the more depressed you right. become. Right. You know, the, the longer you view it, the more irreligious you become. The, the, the more you view it, the riskier your, your uh, behaviors. The more you view it, uh, the doubling and tripling of your divorce rate. Right. The more you view it, I mean, you just look at it, it's utterly, utterly destructive of the family. Right. Utterly destructive of the family. And it's all, it's just 
proven, really. I mean, this huge University of Oklahoma study just pretty much proves, you know, the, the thesis that, uh, yeah, we do need sexual norms and mores. It's good for our emotional health. Without it, we become very destabilized uh, emotionally. We don't think we do because we think, well, gosh, you know, that was a great experience. Uh, I think I'll go on to the next thing. But you're not looking at the increase in depression rate. You're not looking at the increase in anxiety rate. You're not looking at the incre uh, increase in uh, uh, decrease in religiosity, et cetera, et cetera. And so, of course, if you start looking at those other long-term trends that are accompanying the short-term elation that seems to be coming from sexual license, all of a sudden, I think we would you know, really have to reconsider right. what in the world are we doing as we're filling up with panic right. attacks, uh, you know, huge increases in major psychiatric disorders, not just depression and anxiety and suicide, though certainly that, but the substance abuse, uh, you know, stuff mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, is going right through the ceiling as well. well. And so you look at this, like I said in my book, Moral Wisdom, I, I outline these statistics again and again and again. This is not healthy right. for us individually. Right. It's not healthy for the culture. And in fact, I just don't see we're, we're going to, you know, we could implode right. under our own decadence Absolutely. if we don't, you know, to, turn to, things around. To connect to your uh, uh, mention of your book, elsewhere in the article, they kind of turned about, uh, talked a little bit about how it relates to the church. They said the idea of following up with Veritatis Splendor being this strong statement, but since then we've had some other perspectives put forward. He says, they all tend to support what has been called the gradualism of the law, by which no specific universal law governs moral behavior in all situations. Goes on to say the moral law would not be speakingly thrown out, strictly put, but it would be, quote unquote, kicked upstairs, so to speak. It acted as a long-term goal and not as an immediate guide and judge of action. Well, that's, that's uh, again, uh, you're just letting you know the the devil in the back door uh, mm -hmm. a little bit at a time. And I remember the old Irma Bombeck joke. You know, uh, I can take this huge uh, piece of chocolate cake so long as I slice it very thinly and eat it slowly. It must have less calories than if I just eat it all at once. Right. You know, and of course it's the whole point. You know that. Uh, um, you're going to get the same event uh, effect over the over the long term. You're just going to stretch the timeline out a little bit. And gradualism is not a good thing. Right. Uh, and you know Jesus Christ certainly didn't believe in gradualism. I mean, I don't think anybody could make that case from looking at the New Testament for more than five minutes. So he's uh, certainly not a gradualist. He certainly did believe that certain acts had moral significance, moral weight, moral impact on your emotional life, mm. your religious life and of course you know you're you know are you going to open yourself up to to, to evil you're going to open mm -hmm. yourself up to darkness that the best way to do that you think oh pornography is victimless sin i think it's just a gigantic portal to just let the evil spirit right into your life Who, who's engineering all this anyway of course it's it's satan as we discussed in the last book you know of mm -hmm. course this guy is super active in all of the sexual license that's going on in the culture and, and as he becomes more and more active and we just open that portal up more and more through a grad oh ever so slowly ever so mm -hmm. gradually but at the, you know at the end of the day you're opening it up and he is getting influence of immense proportions you say oh you know that's psychoanalytically can be explained no it can't the psychoanalytic explanation runs dead 
out when you talk about the irreligiosity that occurs with sexual license. I mean, let's face facts. You move into any of these lifestyles. I don't care if it's homosexual lifestyle. I don't care if it's pornographic lifestyle. Whatever it is, you can just see through good secular poll uh, surveys. You can just see that people's r religious life begins to, you know, uh, right. catapult downwards, oh, as we can see in in, in the secularization of the culture that you just mentioned with the Wall Street right. Journal. So, you know, the, the idea is, for me, you know, uh, you got to reverse it. We just got to see our logic is inverted. We have lost sight uh, of the fact that these moral prescriptions and proscriptions uh, that have been given to us, that they really are gems. Right. They really are lights that guide us. And not just guide us, but they're warning signs to us of don't cross this boundary. If you do, you let darkness in. You you let evil in. You separate yourself off from God. You're, you're, you know, God can't influence you as you kind of build this boundary of, you know, uh, darkness of opening this portal and repeatedly right. just going after this stuff. It's not just going to have emotional effects. It has really deleterious spiritual effects. And and who's the agent of the deleterious spiritual effect? The evil spirit. You know, absolutely mm -hmm. he is there. I mean, if, if somebody can actually come up to me today and say, oh, there's no such thing as an evil spirit, I mean, I, I would just honestly fall off my chair because the evidence is just so overwhelming of what is going on. You know, and uh, don't think that right. the Satanists don't know of the spirit that they worship and the power that he tries to give. Of course they do. There's signs of it everywhere. Right. And, uh, you know, even, you know, uh, uh, people who stupidly you know, uh, you know, uh, play with occult kinds of things, you know. Right, no. and, and, Holy and, Spirit uh, board uh, you know, or Ouija with, board or something. Right? Yeah, Ouija board, yeah, exactly. Right. So okay, anyway, me, as you can see, they, right. they know, you right. know. Absolutely. What do you think's moving that, you know. Let me try to get one more, more around the board. quick thing to sure. respond before we get to a question. I thought this was interesting. There was an award given away uh, named for the late Marvin C. Wilbur, a pioneer in religious public relations. Uh, longtime council liver of something, and so that the Wilbur Awards that are given away by the RCC. Uh -huh. Okay, so supposedly this is a religious council group. Uh, and the audio, I thought this was uh -huh. interesting, the audio production news story was entitled, an NPR story, of course, When Does Life Begin? Mm -hmm. Religions Don't Agree. And then the people who did this, and I thought, First of all, it has nothing to do with your religion as to when life begins, right? Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, the biologists pretty much agree. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, as I said, 60, you know, 90, 96% of uh, biologists, PhD biologists internationally agree that it begins at the single-celled zygote stage, attached or unattached. It begins at fertilization, and 68% of uh, U.S. Um, uh, biologists agree uh, that it begins at fertilization, which is still a supermajority. Um, and so uh, there's a lot more agreement, I guess, among biologists right. than there is among religious people. And, you know, uh, and, uh, I, you know I, I wonder what the religious criterion is. I mean, uh, you know, what religion is going to sit there and say, uh, take a chance, uh, kill a human being that is uh, clearly in Mark. the womb, um, you know, and uh, that biologists yeah. would certainly identify as clearly in the womb. Go ahead and uh, just uh, 
uh, in case, uh, that might be okay. Well, uh, well let's sanction uh, the killing of that being. What religion right. is going to do that? I don't know. Is it, you know, I, I have a hard been, time believing that in the been, authenticity of such a religion. The, they, they've been, yeah, they've been co-opted by uh, secular society. Co-opted, absolutely. Right. So let's get one quick question in before the break. Uh, somebody wrote to us, Dear Father Spitzer, at the recent time change that happened, uh, our alarm to go to Mass on Sunday went off, but we forgot about the change to Daylight Savings Time, causing us to miss Mass. Instead, we watched Mass on EWTN and went on Monday. I could have gone to a later Mass on Sunday, but did not. Did not. Am I in mortal sin, Sue? Well, Sue... Um, you know, I, I think uh, um, if you had a good reason for not going to the Sunday um, Mass, you know, that was kind of an exigency, uh, then it certainly um, it wouldn't be a mortal sin. I mean, obviously, the reason that you missed Mass was not because you deliberately intended to miss it, but because... Um, you chose to go to a Monday Mass to make up for it rather than a Sunday Mass. Mm -hmm. So if it were my judgment, I would say no. Mm -hmm. You're not in a mortal sin because I think, you know, it sounds like you may have had impediments to the free use of your will. Right. If you were perfectly free to go ahead and go to the Sunday Mass and decided to watch the football game, I, I'm not sure. Uh, right. I, it doesn't sound like, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a huge thing to me, but I, I would say you probably should go to confession about that. But um, mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes, if there was some reason why uh, you didn't uh, go to the uh, uh, to the Sunday mass and you know decided to to go to the Monday mass and it was a good reason, then right. I would say no, you're not in mortal sin. Right. Well, obviously they missed it because of the the alarm and having the time be yeah, off, and, sure. and so then it was just a question of how difficult yeah. it was for them to go later. Uh, yeah. And certainly they did That's watch right. it difficult. on EWTN mm -hmm. as, a, as a backup, which doesn't, mm -hmm. you know, obviously replace yep. it, but it uh, shows their goodwill and good intent. Yeah. So with that being the case, yep. we're going to right, take a break. Much more ahead with Father Spitzer right here in his universe. Stay with us. Thank you so much for staying right where you are so you can join us for Father Spitzer's Universe, part two of the Holy Eucharist from Father's book, Escape from Evil's Darkness. And we'll be talking about his morality book in the near future. But first, we got some more questions for Father. Dear Father Spitzer, in Matthew 18, Christ speaks about forgiveness. Is an apology from the sinner always necessary for one to forgive? Is everything forgivable all the time? I have a friend whose sons were sexually abused by their father for many years. She finally divorced him. Should my friend forgive him? Should she have forgiven him while he continued his actions? Angela. Angela, yes, uh, the uh, idea of forgiveness for Jesus is pretty much unconditional. So he, he asks us to forgive, but forgiveness just means letting go of the penalty that um, you know you could exact against such a person 
and, and just uh, letting that person start over again. Now that's a very different thing. You know, when I just let it go, I'm no longer seeking vengeance, I'm no longer seeking retribution, that's what forgiveness means, let go of, you know, the, 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 the just penalty I could exact against this person so that vengeance is out of my heart, retribution's out of my heart, you know, getting even is out of my heart. Now that's one thing. The second thing, though, is you can still take action against such a person. Right. In other words, you can forgive that person, and you can still say, that person is abusing my child to the police. Right, uh, you can definitely right. do that, and you should do that, absolutely. because, of course, that person is, a, is an abuser. And you need to protect thing, society, too, is, and those children. Right? <clears throat> that's right. And others who might mm -hmm, be, mm -hmm. uh, you know, affected by this person. So, right. <clears throat> Additionally, you can also um, differentiate between forgetting and forgiving. Obviously, <coughs> excuse me, forgetting is a very different thing. <clears throat> I mean, it takes. I always say, <clears throat> once I begin the <coughs> sorry, <clears throat> once I begin the process of forgiveness, forgetting oh, it takes at least six months longer. Maybe a year longer. So, in any case, um, the the key uh, point right. is uh, pretty clear that um, what we're dealing with here is a um, is a, a matter of uh, letting you know psychologically letting go of it. I have my little prayer though, Lord, you're the just judge. You take care right. of it, and that just adds force right. to the. Uh, uh, to the forgive right. my act of forgiveness, but I do let it go because it just destroys me. It destroys the people around me. You you keep that person imprisoned, but you can take protective actions. You can you know assume right. that the forgetting process will take much longer. Well, well I and think that's, you know that's right. just the way right. it goes. Well, I think sometimes people get caught up in there. They're trying to be good. And they read about this and they hear about the scriptures of forgiveness. And, and, you know, it's the issue, as Mother used to say, it doesn't mean you're a doormat, you know what I mean? And it doesn't also yeah, mean that exactly. because you forgive somebody for what they did to you that you like them now or go, you know what I mean? And suddenly they're yeah, okay right. with you, you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? You know, suddenly, yeah. uh, well, yeah. I have to like this person. It's like you forgive what they did. Yeah. But, you know, I think people sometimes yeah. are, are asking too much of themselves too quickly also. That's right. I mean, you've got to stop the process of, you know, violence begetting violence and vengeance begetting vengeance. If you can stop that sense of, you know, requiring vengeance or retribution or uh, payback, etc., yeah. if you can stop that process, which is really what Jesus is trying to do, mm -hmm. because if that just keeps going, you know, it escalates. And, and uh, the more it escalates, the more problems, you know, it goes way beyond just the, the people who are involved in the dispute. It just extends out to the whole family, it kills everybody. Right. You know, you just got to get retribution. So, um, you know, just I, right. you know, uh, I'm. I just got to get even. You know, just right. get, it's the Hatfields the and the McCoys in the states where we'd say, That's you know, right. everybody's yeah. got to make up for the last slight that was done or killing from the other group. Yeah. They, it's a very tribal kind That's of things right. that exists in a lot of other parts of the world, not maybe as much in the United States, but right. Yeah, as Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I don't say that. I say turn the other cheek and do good for those and pray for those who hate you.
and that's and what a, we got to do. And, and an eye for so, eye and a tooth for a tooth yeah. was a, a just way for the Jews, which was a much more improvement of what yeah. existed before, where no matter what you did, they oh, killed yeah, you. Oh, yeah, you could. <laughs> Basically, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, either that or, yeah, you could exact vengeance seven times, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, you look at Cain and Abel, you know, and uh, God puts a mark on Cain's head, and he says, you know, uh, you know, if uh, somebody does something against Cain, I'm going to get vengeance, you know, uh, multiple times mm. over. You know, it's, it's not just going to be uh, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. So by the time, of course, you get to the Mosaic period, mm. Moses says that, that no longer holds. Right. You got you to stop right when you got one eye for one eye and a you know, tooth for a tooth. Right. It's, it really was a stopping thing. Right. It wasn't justifying going over. It was Jesus who said, cut that out too. Right. The strict right. justice is not what's needed. What's needed is genuine forgiveness from the heart. And that's what will eventually uh, bring, you know, civil, uh, you know, peace out of, and, and you know, inter individual right. uh, peace, interpersonal peace right. uh, out of discord uh, that comes from terribly unjust actions by people. Okay, so, one, um, anyway, one last, just stop the process. Right, one NGB last question fitness. before we get to the topic of the Eucharist. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, how mm -hmm. does the doctrine of infallibility work? How does a pope know he should teach something as infallible? Did Pope Pius IX just think that the Immaculate Exception was a great idea and, and declare it as an <laughs> infallible doctrine, or did God reveal it to him, yeah. Joe? Uh. Yeah. No, Joe, that's a very good question. I was laughing only because, right. uh, you know, uh, uh, the way you put it, you right. think it was a great idea. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, it was a great idea, but that was not the reason he did it. I mean, there's a whole process that one goes through. The first thing, of course, is it has to be objectively justifiable. It has to do with the doctrine of the faith. It has to affect the salvation of believers. It has to, you know, um, uh, be, you know, um, uh, you know, in a sense, um, in accord with the, the tradition of the church. And, and so there's a whole series of criteria uh, that is outlined uh, for it. Uh, I have a little summary uh, of that um, in my book, More Wisdom of the Catholic Church, uh, in chapter seven there, where I, you know, I'm talking about you know, um, what's required mm -hmm. for uh, extraordinary magisterium and what's required for ordinary magisterium, what's required for prudential judgments. So if you want a little review of it, but there is quite a few <clears throat> objective criteria uh, that have to be met uh, in addition to, of course, being in conformity uh, with the tradition of the church, being in conformity uh, too with um, uh, you know the this new idea uh, you know being sanctioned over the course of time by the majority of theologians uh, you know in the, in the tradition of the church etc cetera, etc cetera. so all of these criteria have to be met um, and so the a pope just can't arbitrarily say you know I like X mm -hmm. and uh, uh, you know and and it's going to be declared ex cathedra if the pope's going to use ex cathedra He's got to go through that procedure, which is right. very extensive indeed. And by the way, the Immaculate Conception did, of course, fulfill right. all of the objective criteria, subjective criteria, uh, you know, conformity with tradition criteria, conformity with dogma criteria, et cetera. Right. So um, uh, criteria, et cetera. So he did it uh, very, very well. Right, absolutely. It's very rare even when it, when it occurs in the history of the church. Yeah, very uh, rare. I so think, let, uh, yeah, let's, maybe let's two talk, or three were, times. You, yeah. Right, you were talking about time, and let's jump to the Eucharist, uh, where you talk about <laughs> the, the difference between physical time 
and the idea that it works yeah. different than what you call sacred time. You want to go back over those two? Yeah, I mean, the, the point, um, you know, physical time, um, like we think of it today in our society, uh, you know, we've got our little atomic clocks there that determine to the last microsecond, uh, you know, what the time is according to the Earth's rotation, uh, I mean, the um, uh, Earth's um, uh, orbit around the sun and, and of course, uh, the, uh, the Earth's uh, rotation on its own axis. And, of course, you can determine that very, very carefully, um, you know, both uh, from an annual point of view and second by second according to the, the Earth's rotation. But uh, that physical time um, that we measure is very different from the first century Semitic view of uh, what's called sacred time. Uh, you know, all time has to be in the mind of God. Because the, the bizarre part about time is it combines earlier with later. In other words, if you're going to have a distended present moment where something can exist for 10 to the minus 40 second seconds, uh, that would be what's called a Planck interval. If you're going to have that, the only way you're going to get that interval is if you know, some kind of a transcendent mind is holding together the earlier um, you know, that's fading away, if I can put it that way, with the later that's coming uh, into being. So this, you know, what we call a distended, um, non-contemporaneous continuum, the only way uh, a non-contemporaneous continuum earlier and later can be held together is through some kind of transcendent mm -hmm. mind, some kind of transcendent memory. And there's a very good proof of that um, in uh, Henri Bergson's book, um, you know, on um, uh, time and free will, and another book called Duration and Simultaneity. Uh, very, both very, very excellent books. But in any case, what did the sacred writers believe in the first century? They didn't have any notion of physical time. They didn't have any notion of time being held together uh, in God's memory, you know, kind of a Bergsonian proof. But they did know that time was in God's mind. And because of that, they really believed that, you know, if God wanted, he could collapse the time between a present moment and a, and a past moment, or he could collapse the time between a future moment that doesn't even exist now in God's eternal now and bring it into the present moment. And so we say with the Holy Eucharist, that's Jesus's view of time, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus really believes that as he says these, uh, you know, words in the prophetic utterance where the, the, you know, the prophetic word takes on its mm -hmm. own life, right? And it goes into the future and it can bring the future event, which hasn't happened yet for us, mm -hmm. but it is existent in God's eternal now, he, he, you know, he can take that future event, as it were, and pull it back into our present moment and collapse the time between the future event and the present moment so that when Jesus is actually handing the bread uh, to his disciples that he should take, eat, this is my body mm -hmm. being given for you. When he, and being given, right, that present passive participle, so important, you know, uh, you know, being given like when, now, right now it's being given for you, right, uh, that, that translation is really, into Greek is really important. And so you look at that and you say, oh, what's happening there? Literally, Jesus is handing this bread transformed into his body hanging from the cross at Calvary that's been brought from the future in God's eternal now into the present bread that he's handing to them mm -hmm. at that very moment. And the same with the cup.
So that's the first collapse of time. Jesus' prophetic word goes in the future, and the very bread that he is giving now is his body that he's on the, the cross at, Cal, uh, at uh, uh, Calvary that he's giving to his disciples. Now, he then says to the disciples, this is the second collapse of time. And, you know, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So there is that um, word remembrance, anamnesis in Greek, uh, translating basically Jesus' Hebrew, which will probably mean something like relive this sacred event to make the sacred event in the past real in the present. That's the best way I have of translating um, uh, basically the Hebrew, which, you know, um, uh, anamnesis in the Greek is trying uh, to, um, uh, you know, translate and make come alive for that audience. It certainly does not mean simply call it to mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think a Jewish person in the first century would have ever thought that, you know, reliving a sacred event, uh, the, the so-called remembrance mm -hmm. of the sacred event, uh, ever meant, oh, uh, you know, just kick back and call it to mind. It has a merely symbolic significance. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would have ever occurred to them in any way, shape, or form. What they right. thought was really going to happen was as the prophetic word of the priest now, right? So this is the priest. I'm at Mass. I'm holding up the uh, the Eucharist, and I'm saying, uh, this is my body which will be given for you. The, and I'm holding up that uh, host in the sacred mass and reliving the words of institution, the action of institution. When that's actually happening, mm -hmm. then the time again is collapsing. In other words, remember, it's in God's mind. He can collapse that time. So it's collapsing into what? The very moment when Jesus is handing that bread transformed into his body through the first collapse of time, it's now transforming the bread I'm holding into the bread he was giving, which was transformed into his body hanging from the cross at Calvary. That bread is becoming his body mm -hmm. on the cross. And it's at once the same transformed bread into his body that he is giving to his disciples right at that moment. Did Jesus intend that? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's exactly what Jesus intended. Didn't have any notion of physical time in the sense of looking at time from the vantage point of physics. He had a notion of time which was definitely an eternal now view of time. He had a, you know, the, uh, he had a view of, of uh, time as being in the mind of his heavenly father. His, you know, um, he was in his human nature, of course, but it was also in his divine uh, mentation too, right? But in his divine personhood. But you, you can see clearly that Jesus is thinking this, thinking of the sacred reliving, thinking that it would really be his body and blood, which is why we see that Paul clearly meant this in 1 Corinthians. Mm -hmm. We can see that John clearly meant this in his gospel, John 6, um, uh, 32 to, to, to 54. So, uh, you know, the, the bread that I will give is my flesh. 
bread equals flesh. Is my flesh for the life of the world? Hey, mm. what can't you understand? The, the word here is estin. You know, it's, you know it's, it's, it's nothing else than an equivalence. And so, of course, the idea of, you know, this is symbolic of my body, I don't think John could have meant anything like that. And the reason I'm so sure of it is there's not a single person in the, among the church fathers, not one mm. that I can identify that ever thought that the that the Jesus's body was only symbolically present. It's absolutely clear. You know, you, you start you know from Saint Ignatius of Antioch nails it. Uh, you know, Justin Martyr nails it. I mean, all the way until the time of course, Saint Augustine nails it fifteen thousand times over. So you, you know, it's 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 clear the there. Um, throughout the entire church tradition, and so I, I don't, I don't right. see how anybody could possibly think that what Jesus intended was merely symbolic. And and for anybody who is some cultural elitist who thinks, ah, today we understand physics, ah, today we understand time, not a thing has changed with physical time. As I'm trying to say, if physical time does not exist in the mind of God, then physical time does not exist at all. Mm -hmm. Physical time doesn't change anything. The only way you're gonna hold together earlier and later is in a transcendent, transcendent mentative act where earlier can be held together with later in a, uh, in a distended continuum and that takes mentation. That's the only way, or memory, which is another form of mentation, uh, you know, of thinking. Right. And, and that's the only way those things are going to occur. And so, you know, there's no change. Physics doesn't change anything. Jesus' view of time is spot on. And if, the, if it's spot on, we should accept it. And he certainly understood it. Uh, you know, um, right. uh, you know, as being, you know, uh, uh, you know, something that his father could effect and and uh, and would be affected right. for every single priest uh, going forward into the future. And he and he would have been obligated to uh, explain that to the disciples who left him because they found the teaching too hard. Explain that no, no, you yeah. misunderstand what I'm saying, and then turning to yeah. the apostles and saying, "Well, are you going to leave me too?" He didn't say, "No, no, no." Let's get together separately. Yeah. I'll really explain this to you guys, so you know it's okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? I'll give you the the, the real truth. No, right. he let all those people walk away because they were right. They thought, hey, he's really giving us his body and his blood. I mean, right. why would anybody walk away if he if were just saying, oh, I, I'd like you to call this to mind in the future? What would be so scandalous about that? Mm. No, no, no. The idea of giving his real body and his real blood, that's what causes the scandal. And right. that's what causes Jesus to lose his disciples. And I'm sure that actually, uh, of course, not only happened, but of course the, the apostles swoop in and finally say, well, wait a minute, we're not leaving you. Uh, we've come to believe right. that you have the words of everlasting life. Where are we going to go anyway? Right. There's you no know? place else. I mean, right. That's absolutely. Peter. <laughs> yeah, there's no place absolutely. else to go. Uh, we've discovered you. Right. It's one of those <laughs> one of those prayers that comes in many hand, uh, mighty handy many times oh, when yeah. life gets tough, right? Where, where are we to go, yeah, Lord? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay, right. You, 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 make, you make the point that reenactment makes his body and blood present to every generation until the end of time. And you quote somebody else about, even in the Old Testament, the liturgy is the privileged medium in which the covenant maintains, attains actuality. Yes, that's right. And so, uh, uh, you know, that, that's Johannes Betts. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if uh, you know, he wrote uh, 
uh, well, he's written, of course, a, a lot of articles and books. Unfortunately, a good number of them are in German, but there is this article that he wrote in the Sacramento Mundi on the Eucharist, and, uh, you know, you might want to take a look at it. This is a first-class scholar who basically shows very clearly that what Jesus is talking about is to relive the sacred event to collapse the time between the reliving of the sacred event and the actual sacred event into which both species, right, the actual species of Jesus' transformed body and blood um, that he's handing to his apostles is being collapsed right into the bread. And it's not just uh, bringing, you know, the, the, the real body and blood, but the real efficacy surrounding Jesus' gift of himself. That mm -hmm. whole thing, that whole event is being collapsed, uh, you know, together. And the priest then is, is as it were, uh, being, you know, uh, taking the place of, uh, you know, Jesus himself, the altar Christi, um, you know, who's doing this. And, of course, the whole efficacy of that moment of the self-gift of Jesus' real body and blood, his soul and his divine personhood, all being, you know, given to us uh, in that moment. That's precisely, I mean, mm -hmm. Betts gets it. He articulates it very well. And even Protestants know this. I mean, uh, Joachim Jeremias, I, I mean, let's face it, you know, he's a Lutheran, but he mm -hmm. certainly got it uh, right on the marker in his Eucharistic words of Jesus. Uh, Hans Schurman, of course, good Catholic uh, theologian, gets it very much. Um, you know, even Gerhard von Rad, who's definitely, um, you know, mm -hmm. a... Uh, uh, you know, a Protestant uh, theologian, but in his, uh, Alton, uh, his uh, Old Testament mm. uh, theology uh, volume uh, two, um, you know, he definitely, the prophetic uh, word, he talks about these uh, collapses of time. Uh, you can see it in the more generic sense in Mercia Eliada's work, the sacred and the profane, mm -hmm. uh, showing the whole notion of uh, sacred time, collapsible time, you know, that brings us closer and closer, the so-called eternal return to the sacred event. All of these things um, are just, you know, they're writ large in literature. Uh, unfortunately, though, uh, Martin Luther did not read those books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. he didn't know those things. And, and neither did uh, Rudolf Bultmann. Uh, Bultmann made, a, a, you know, unfortunately, a very big mistake. Mm -hmm. But thank goodness, you know, good Protestant uh, uh, scripture scholars and theologians like uh, Joachim uh, Jeremias, mm -hmm. uh, you know, basically corrected Bultmann. I think, frankly, the, the Vatican ought to elevate a statue to the guy. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, he's, he's one of the, the great honest, you know, exegetes that just basically said, I hate to say this, but the guy who wrote the great Werther book of, of theology, you know, Theologische mm -hmm. uh, Werther book, you know, he's wrong. He's, you know, uh, alas, alas, uh, you know, um, he, he made some big, big, big mistakes. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though he was a smart guy, uh, everything he said was by no mm -hmm. means true. In fact, he was really, really overwhelmingly, you know, affected by a, a kind of, um, I would call it, I wouldn't say an anti-Semitic, but a, uh, you know, a bias, you know, against a Semitic interpretation uh, of, of uh, you know, the, the Jesus movement. It was um, uh, Joachim Jeremias who had to correct it in his fantastic book, uh, Jerusalem at the yeah. Time of Jesus, um, you know, where he, he's, he refits that. Uh, but Noah Bultmann had no. a very Hellenistic view uh, of uh, how to interpret Jesus. Right. And that Hellenistic view biased just about everything he did. Right. And, and, you know, we, you don't really get out of Boltman a, a Jewish Jesus. Unfortunately, Jew, Jesus was Jewish. Right. I guess and that's, comes off too Greek, I guess. Yeah. That's, uh, with that being said, we're yeah. going to have to 
end our program here, Father Spitzer. So oh. if you'd lead us uh, Boy. in, a, in, a, in yeah. your blessing, that'd be great. Sure, and bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord bless you, especially through your reception of the Holy Eucharist, your reception of his body, blood, soul, divinity, his unconditional love, so that you might be transformed in his heart, healed in your soul, forgiven of your sins, and brought to the fullness of eternal life so that you too can affect those uh, who are also around you, who are seeking that same life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Always a pleasure. We shall see you next week. Be well. And, of course, Father Spitzer's yeah. books and DVDs are naturally available through our EWTM Religious Catalog. Check them out. Next week, our show topic continues on the Holy Eucharist. And bookmark, don't forget, every weekend, there's another great bookmark interview coming up Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Also, if you miss any of them, you see them on demand and on, also on our YouTube channel. And, of course, the Solemn Mass of Palm Sunday. Yes, it's upon us from the Basilica of the National Sunday Immaculate oh. Conception in Washington, D.C. This Sunday, April 2nd, as always, we always carry it, noontime Eastern. So check that out. And remember, we've got Holy Week coming up. So be prepared for Father Spitzer's universe. We shall see you next week. Thanks. <laughs>